Welcome to the Ruby Rogues. My name is John Epperson. And on our panel today, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. And for our guest today, we have Richard Feldman. Richard. Hello. Uh, Richard, we've had you on the panel before. I was not here. I was listening to the podcast at this time. It was quite a while ago. I believe Avdi was still on. Who? I don't, I don't remember who else would have been there. Looks like, according to the picks, Chuck and Evan, Jessica Kerr at the time. I actually don't remember how to pronounce her last name. So uh, Kerr. Kerr. It she, was Kerr. Okay. Oh, Coraline was to, on here, too. Jessica and I used to work together. And I, as I recall, it's a long time ago. I think she introduced herself to me as Care Like Care Bear. So I think that's how it's pronounced. But she'll correct I me. I remember that on. now that I think about it. I remember hearing that. Okay, fair enough. Wow, can't believe I didn't even recognize that. Sorry, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, so welcome, uh, welcome again. And I remember listening to this particular podcast, actually. Um, I remember being very excited about Elm. And Elm is one of the many things over the years that I was like, I'm going to do that thing, and I didn't do it. So I'm excited to hear how it's changed and different. It also sounds like you, or I mean, it sounds like you did release a book. So we can talk about that, too. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I guess maybe to get us into this, why don't you talk about uh, what the, I don't know, what the goal of your book was and like, why did you release it? Why'd you write it? Yeah, sure. So the main goal of the book is to help people who have never done anything with Elm or anything with functional programming of any sort learn Elm from scratch and basically be able to build applications in Elm. One of my big goals for writing the book is that when I was first getting into like functional programming languages, especially typed functional programming languages, I found that a lot of the books, actually really all the books I could find at the time, were just really, really theory focused. They would talk about a lot about like philosophy and they use the phrase reason about a lot. And I just uh, don't work that way. I like to build stuff. And so I wanted to write a book for people who like to build stuff like me. <laughs> so that's what the book is. It's a way to learn Elm by building stuff. So over the course of the book, starting from chapter two, like chapter one is basically like syntax and stuff like that, you know, kind of stuff you need. Starting from chapter two, for the rest of the book, you're working on building a sort of a photo browsing application. And uh, each chapter, it's like you get a a new, a new feature to build uh, from your fictitious manager. And you build it. And then over the course of the chapter, while you're building it, you learn some new concept in language like testing or, you know, uh, something like that. It sounds very, it sounds very Rails-esque, right? Like get your, do your iterative thing, get your small victory, move on to the next step. Could I like be. It. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, it was a, a real challenge to write the book in that style. I, I at, at first, I was like, man, why doesn't everybody write a book like this? And by the end, I was like, oh, now I know. <laughs> because it turns out to be a big challenge to to get everything to sort of pull together in that way. Because it's not just that you're like, of course, I need to build the application myself so that I can, you know, go back and <laughs> build it up chapter by chapter. But then whenever I would discover, oh, wait a minute, I need to teach this chap this concept a little bit earlier, or a little bit later, then I'd have to go revise the application and then also go sort of propagate that change through all the chapters that were affected. So revisions took a lot longer than I was hoping for up front. <laughs> totally fair. That makes a lot of sense. But I'm really happy with how it turned out. I mean, it, it ends up, yeah, you, you do actually build an application from start to finish and learn about the, the language along the way. So how 
How do you recommend using Elm? Do you see Elm as a thing that lives alongside Rails in our stack? Is it is it really a separate thing that we should we should we should pick this tool off the shelf when we're approaching certain kinds of problems and leave Rails, you know, for the instead? Or yeah, how do you see these things living? Yeah, direction? great question. So I mean, the way that we use it at work, like very specifically, is we have Rails on the back end uh, for most of our back end at this point. And, and then on each individual page, what we do is instead of loading some compiled JavaScript, uh, we load some compiled Elm instead. So basically, anytime you're doing what I would call a web application, whether that's a single page app or just something that has a, a lot of complicated front end logic, I think that's where Elm's a really good fit. Conversely, if you have just kind of a, a tiny little bit of JavaScript that's just kind of like augmenting what's primarily HTML on the page, I don't think it's worth it to to go like all the way to Elm, you're not really going to you know get the benefit of using a whole different language unless you have a lot of complexity there. All right, so we can throw away our React and things like that in exchange for Elm. That's what we did at work, yeah. <laughs> so literally, right. we, we started from React and then migrated things to Elm eventually. I guess it's more accurate to say that Elm took over. Technically, we still have some ancient React in there. It's like React 0.12, I think, because <laughs> we just haven't... It's, it's been that long since we wrote any new React code. That's fair. Yeah, I was it like Duff. I don't know. Whatever. Somewhere in there, React change, and then I I went from being very excited about it to not not being as big of a fan. So, how do you feel about this? All right. So, so stimulus is kind of a thing in the Rails community right now, and it, with a good amount of popularity. I don't know. I don't know how popular it is. I like it, but how how does it uh, compare with things like that? How do you pick, or are you just committed to Elm, and so you really haven't, you know, put a ton of comparative time in. I guess. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we've been so happy with Elm that we we definitely have not really like <laughs> reconsidered that choice. Uh, the way that I see it is it's it's kind of like the the big question is sort of Elm versus JavaScript as a whole because they're very different languages. I mean, they both sort of solve the same problem, but they come at it from pretty different angles. And so from our perspective, like we have a lot of people who are just really happy being Elm programmers and uh, something that I've noticed is that once people get a taste of using Elm at work, it's pretty common that like the first place they go after, you know, when they're looking to move jobs is like the jobs channel on Elm Slack <laughs> because they want to use Elm again rather than going back to JavaScript or TypeScript or that that whole ecosystem. I got some dumb questions. Fire away. I got some dumb questions. What some is dumb answers? Ruby infamously has has little to no typing and an amazing imagination. What is it about front-end development? That, that seems to require some kind of typing system? You know, I, I don't know that it, it's necessarily so much of a domain-specific thing. For me personally, I would say it's more about sort of the, the identity of the language itself. So you can classify both Ruby and JavaScript as, you know, dynamic languages, but they feel very different to use. I mean, they, they go about it in very different ways. And similarly, I would say that like Elm and TypeScript although they're both type-checked languages, they feel very different to use and they, and they go about it in very different ways. So I don't know that it's necessarily uh, a front-end specific thing. So Evan, who was on the podcast last time, he's the guy who created Elm. And he basically, when he was trying to, when he created the language, it was because he had this experience where he was uh, doing an internship at Google and he was working on like C++ and Gmail or something like that. 
And a friend of his was doing some JavaScript stuff and he had finished his project early and was going over to help out his friend. And he was really surprised by just how hard it seemed to be to, to work in that environment relative to kind of what he assumed it would be like at a place like Google, where they just have the most investment ever in, in JavaScript. And what he remembered was he was like, man, I, I, I worked with some of these older languages in college, like these ML family languages that have these nice module systems and things like this and that. And it seemed like a lot of this stuff was just much easier. So his thinking was not, you know, oh, let's add a type checker to this. Because I think if he'd done that, he would have ended up with something more similar to TypeScript or Flow or, you know, one of these other projects. But rather, he was thinking about at the language level, I've had these really positive, nice experiences with these this other family of languages that are, you know, not as popular in mainstream use. And it's like, I, I think there'd be an opportunity to, to try this out in this domain. So whether that's innate to front end or not, I don't know. But I, I think it's it really has more to do with like the positive feelings that people express about Elm, I think are similar to the positive feelings people express about Ruby. It's just like a, a joy to use. It's a delight to use the language. That's, that's a very positive and, and uplifting story i'm going to suggest that the reality is that the web is getting is getting worse instead of better uh, browsers are coming left left right and center obviously ie's going away but still a lot of things require ie 11 for commercial reason true and the front end is inherently a hostile it's like a wild west atmosphere when i'm safe on my server with my ruby micro frameworks or rails no one can touch me uh, I've, I, I control the environment. Uh, it seems to me that on the front end, you are on the front lines. Front end uh, development is front line development. There we go. You heard it here first. And um, <laughs> what I think reading through and listening to um, Evan talk about Elm is Elm is like a shield that can protect you against the vagarities of what can be really quite a hostile programming environment. Uh, on the front end, um, and let me let me delve into some of my own front end experiences. Recently, sure. I had to start writing complicated front ends. This mm-hmm. is not something I've done. Generally, I've been writing very simple front ends with a business logic in the back, and uh, maybe you just have to hit a button, or you can do everything sure. separate pages is fine. But you know, as a as, as you as as it turns out, I do have to write some fairly complicated, almost desktop app-like yeah. interfaces now. Oh, for sure, yeah. And uh, I looked at Stimulus, but I've, I've been using Vue to do my front-end development. And I get errors left, right, and center. I get more errors from Vue than I have from any any other language, any other programming environment. It really, really likes to blow up, and it's a, it's very much a sudden death situation. One error in my Vue code will take out the whole page. Hmm. So I would be interested, very interested, in a front end where I don't have that concern that the app's going to blow up for oh, yeah. someone on some browser, and then they're just dead. The single-page app stops working, and I've, I've lost that business. Yeah, I mean, that's, we were using Elm with Internet Explorer 9 uh, for many years. So that's certainly not a concern. And also, I mean, if an Elm app's going to blow up, it's going to be you get a compile error. (laughs) We actually went almost two years before we got our first runtime error that was logged, like our our production 
server like logged a, a runtime exception. It's just, I mean, it can happen. Actually, the particular one that we ran into them was then fixed in the next release of Elm, so that couldn't happen anymore. But that's really kind of Elm's goal is that if, if something bad's going to happen, it's going to happen on your local development machine at compile time, um, not at runtime where it can affect your users. And it's it really delivers on that. We still have like JavaScript logging, uh, you know, enabled on production and. Yeah, the number of runtime exceptions we get from our JavaScript, you know, we still have some legacy JS, even though now it's, it's we have like 400,000 lines of Elm code. This is at No Red Ink, by the way, where uh, mm. we, we make stuff for uh, software for English teachers. So students and teachers, we have like millions of users, you know, very high traffic, lots of different devices. By the way, we're hiring full stack engineers and, and also uh, <laughs> SRE and tooling engineers if you're interested in working with Elm at work. That's noredink.com slash jobs. But I mean, what we've seen over the years, and we've been using Elm since 2015. Actually, I think on that podcast, we, we were relatively new to using it um, at the time. But now we've had you know, a lot of experience under our belts. We're, we're way past the honeymoon phase, and we still love it. <laughs> uh, and part of the reason is just, yeah, I mean, we, we get to see every day in our error reports, you know, on Bugsnag, um, just how many exceptions our JavaScript code from, you know, 2014 is still throwing uh, that we haven't, you know, gone back and deleted or rewritten in Elm. Um, and our Elm code just, you know, just plowing along, doing well. Yeah, it, it feels kind of surreal almost, to be to be honest. I, I never thought that, like, prior to using Elm, that that was something you could get in the browser. Because, yeah, I mean, as you said, there's, it's it's a bit of a, it, it can feel like a hostile environment in some ways, especially to doing really complex things. Because, let's face it, that's not what JavaScript was designed for. It was designed for really small scripts. And the way that we use it is to basically build desktop applications that have to be streamed over the internet and used, you know, immediately. <laughs> uh, not what it was designed for. But but yeah, Elm does do a really good job of presenting something that's much nicer than, uh, it's a much nicer interface to the browser. It is different. I mean, it would sort of have to be, right? I mean, it would be weird if you could have something that was both familiar and much better. At some point, in order to be significantly better, you've got to be different. Um, so, you know, hence why uh, there, are, there are many of us out there uh, writing things like books and, and tutorials and things like that to help people learn it. How is it to get up and running for a Rails developer? So, how, I think how since, difficult or easy? Good. Yeah, I man, I think it was since Rails five. You've been able to use it out the box with Sprockets. Uh, don't quote me on that because we actually have a, a different build system. We used to use it with Sprockets, but now we we do our own thing. But yeah, I mean, I I guess it's been a long time since I set it up from scratch. So I, <laughs> but I believe it should be straightforward. Fair enough. I mean, I guess wrong person to ask since you're like, yeah, I've lived with it for forever. That's I thing, don't right? even remember what I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, back back when, admittedly, back in 2015, when it was like the early days, yeah, it was, you know, you, you had to do custom stuff to set it up, but I don't believe that's true anymore. Yeah, I, I looked up a couple of things and it does look like it works with like Webpacker now and some things. I mean, there's a gem out there to get it started. I don't, fair enough. I mean, I actually, the gem actually now that I'm looking at is no red ink slash on rails. So I assume that you guys are involved in that somewhat. Yep. That's the safe okay. assumption. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. All right. Cool. So, I mean, there's some stuff out there. You haven't touched it in a while, so you don't remember how hard it is, but fair enough. I, I But I do remember specifically hearing that it got easier since we originally set it up. So, yeah. All right. Close enough. Sweet. Can so I, why... Oh, go ahead, Luke. Can I ask you about server-side rendering? Sure. 
So server-side rendering is a thing that is not supported out the box. It is something that you can get with like a third-party module. That's not something we do at work, but I know that's like a use case that some people care about and have done. I don't know how it integrates with Rails, though, because like I said, we don't personally use it at work. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's not people who kind of start in Ruby. They start server-side first. That's what sure. you get. Yeah. Yeah. And the transition to client-side rendered model, which is one I went through when learning Foo, right. uh, was quite drastic. You know, you really, you really oh, yeah. do have to re- reorganize things and the way you think about it. Um, do you think of Elm as a, a client-side framework? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, like I said, I, I think of it as, you know, if I'm building something complex, I want Elm to help me with that. If I'm building something where the, the client-side interaction is really simple, I just wouldn't bother with any, you know, compiled to JS technology. I probably wouldn't even, you know, bother with a, a JS framework. I would, <laughs> I would just write plain old JS, you know, if I'm talking to just a handful of lines here, just to, you know, wire a button up to do something, you know, slightly unusual. That's kind of what JavaScript was originally designed for. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's probably not worth the hassle of doing anything custom at the build level if you, um, if you know it's going to be really small. But on the other hand, a lot of times, you know, it's going to be something really big and complex. And I think that's where Elm shines. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of like past the stage, right, where we only write small stuff. Literally, I mean, shoot, these small projects that I don't think I'm writing much JS on. Suddenly I have 10 JS files. Like, and I was I was just like, this is a simple app. Like, what happened? And it's just the way it yeah. works. Well, you know, I mean, uh, to, to a counterpoint to that is um, recently I was writing a documentation generator. And that is something where, you know, I mean, it is almost all static HTML. And I actually tried to have a goal of, I was like, let's see if I can make this work even if someone has JavaScript disabled. And I was able to do it with absolutely everything except for I wanted to have a little search box that would filter things like as you typed into it. So I basically made it so that that search box only appears if you have JavaScript enabled and then everything else. But I mean, the whole all the JavaScript code on that page, you know, fits on one screen. I don't even have to use a scroll bar. Right? So yeah, I didn't, I didn't bother with a, with a build step for that. Nice. Yeah. And uh, I think one thing that I would throw into the ring is I definitely have gotten a lot of, for the low JS code sites, right? Like I've gotten a ton of work out of stimulus. So that's been great too. So talk to me about why I should pick Elm. Like what, maybe what the right use case would be for, for somebody that, that's considering it. Or maybe a wrong sure. use case if you're aware of that. I mean, I, I think the, the main use case is just you have an application that's like Luke said, something that's basically a desktop app in the browser. Um, something that's like uh, going to be you know, pretty complex. Um, and uh, so some, here are some, I don't know, interesting facts about Elm. Um, if you look at uh, JS framework benchmarks and you put Elm into those benchmarks, Elm does extremely well in those benchmarks. Like it's really fast. Generally speaking, outperforms React, outperforms Vue. I think there was like one benchmark where like the latest Angular outperformed it in one of the like micro benchmarks and all the others, Elm was faster than it. So it's, 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 it runs really fast. Um, also compiled asset size, it's basically smaller than anything but Svelte. Svelte, I mean, okay, it's hard to beat Svelte because it's like, that's their whole point. <laughs> that's what it was built for. Um, but generally speaking, in terms of compiled asset size, uh, Elm is smaller than everything but Svelte uh, for like real world applications. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just, 
the output that you get is very high quality. And then also the experience of building the application is that it just feels really nice and everything's like works really reliably. One of the biggest things that I think uh, for me that I love about Elm is that the ecosystem is totally separate. Like for our front end, except for our legacy JS stuff, um, we don't use NPM. We just use Elm's package system. And the really critical difference there is that everything in the Elm package ecosystem is 100% Elm. It's just all built on this same set of shared primitives, this sort of different foundational API of how to interact with the browser, which means that we don't get these like, you know, errors sort of sneaking into our system and like, oh, this library had an incompatibility with that library. And they were, one of them was, you know, doing something that it shouldn't have been doing. It's like, no, they, they all play by the same rules. It, a, a way of thinking of this is it's like, well, imagine if JavaScript started with TypeScript and ES6 uh, in, in 2020 rather than in, you know, the 90s. Um, you know, how much better would people have, how much better of an ecosystem would people have made with the benefit of hindsight and with also without having to do all these backwards compatibility hacks for old hacks that people used to do previously. And in a lot of ways, Elm is sort of the result of like that plus sort of going even further and saying, what if we didn't even need to take JavaScript as a language as the foundation? And somewhat miraculously, there, there actually is an ecosystem there. You know, it's obviously it's not as big as NPM because no ecosystem is as big as NPM. But I mean, if you go to package.elm-lang.org, I mean, you can just browse through these packages. There's a ton of packages and they're all, um, there are nice things like semantic versioning is actually enforced. So what that means is um, if I go to publish a package and I, uh, I'm going to actually delete this function, I, I decided it was a bad idea. I'm going to take it out. Um, if I don't bump the major version number, uh, the package manager will actually reject that. And it'll say, no, no, that's a breaking change. You have to bump the major version number for breaking change. So, and, and there are other, you know, things that clearly will break compatibility that, that it'll, uh, it'll do that for. So when I get a package from Elm package, I know that I'm going to have this really nice upgrading experience. And, and to be honest, I feel pretty spoiled by that because every time I, like I still use NPM for like some side projects, like command line tools and stuff. And whenever I go to upgrade, like immediately, like five things break. <laughs> like upgrading my packages, I'm just used to things breaking. Um, but in Elm, it's the opposite. Uh, whenever I upgrade my packages, I expect, unless there are major version bumps, in which case, you know, I expect to have to make some changes. Um, if it's all minor and patch versions, I'm just like, yeah, just upgrade. And then I expect everything to just still work perfectly. Um, and that's normally what I get. I mean, of course, bugs can happen. But but yeah, I mean, certainly I expect everything to compile again. And that, that has always been true. It's pretty nice. It does sound very nice. I think in my experience, Rails sits somewhere in between where most people, most of the time, do a great job. And then occasionally you just get completely surprised and bit. But yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So maybe, okay. So Elm is, is faster. It's, you know, smaller. You love your experience in Elm. The compiler um, runs faster than TypeScript too. <laughs> fair. In the experience of people who use both. What about the so, F word? The F word. The F word. I only know one F word that you might be referring to, and I'm not sure how it pertains to our technical discussion it's, here. It's, it's, <laughs> Elm, Elm is a functional Oh. Functional programming. <laughs> yeah. Now this is this is something I've seen a bit about. That was longer uh, than the one I was thinking of. Yeah, right. Uh, I didn't say it was a four-letter word, but it is the That's F true. word. And that was uh, on my it, list of things to ask, and I didn't I didn't recognize that. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Back in the day, 
Hacker News was full of stuff on Haskell. And ah. it just used to make me angry and confused. And I genuinely believe that Haskell has probably set functional programming back 20 years. You know, you might be right about that, to be but honest. You use I think Ruby. that's a... That's a <laughs> don't, don't at me. That's the, a, that, uh, well, I mean, that's a, that's a controversial statement to make in the functional programming community. But I think I could be more nuanced about it than that, which is let that... Me, let oh, me s- just say that I feel off put off by the fact that it says it's functional. This fills me with fear to see it, to, to, to see the F word in a language. I know I'm wrong. I believe that Elm does provide a superior development experience. And like you said, if it didn't, people wouldn't be applying for jobs doing it. So I yeah. totally believe you. Well, um, check it out. Go to elm-lang.org and, and you'll see that it doesn't self-describe as a functional language. It uses a different word. What's the word? A delightful language. Ah, because that's what it's about, right? That does I sound mean, a lot friendlier than the functional and, language. And, and like, yes, technically, if you go to Wikipedia, it's classified as a functional language, but that's really not a big, as big a part of Elm's identity as being a language that's really user-friendly. It's really, uh, I think, just because, you know, the, the languages that Evan used were functional languages, you know, that, that he said, hey, that I had a better experience in college using these sort of more obscure languages i want to try and bring something like that you know to the modern world i think it's it's more about the legacy than about uh trying to advance a, a particular like agenda or or viewpoint and just finding that you know evan tried to put together a language and i think he really succeeded that it just has a lot of really nice characteristics and a functional language is how he ended up there but I completely understand where you're coming from. I, I have felt this too. When I was early on, I had a friend who was really into functional programming and who sort of would talk to me at lunch about it and really convinced me that it was worth my while to look into. But man, when I go on Hacker News, when I when I started like watching some talks, yeah, some of them were really nice, but also some of them just felt like, I just felt very inadequate. Like I this was like some club that I didn't belong to. And if I'm being honest, part of the way that I wrote Elm in Action was in reaction to that. Like, I, I don't think that it should be that way. I think functional programming languages are languages just like, you know, other paradigms. And they should, you know, sort of stand and fall on their own merits, not because people are talking about them as like, you know, I mentioned earlier, like the phrase reason about. I, that one really kind of bothers me because it almost seems by implication that like other languages or other paradigms are unreasonable. And I think there's plenty of ways to, you know, criticize and, and to talk about trade-offs of different languages without all the sort of like high-minded, like, oh, this is just like innately better. I think we can get more specific and say like, for example, like Elm programs, you know, tend not to crash. That's just like a very concrete, nice thing that we can agree is, you know, a, a positive thing. I don't think we need to say like Elm programs are easier to reason about and, you know, are more elegant or something like that. I just, yeah, I, I think it's the way that functional programming languages, and, and in particular, I think, like you said, Haskell, I think, Historically, the way that Haskell has been talked about in Hacker News and elsewhere, a lot of the time is is not really doing the people who like to use these languages any favors. <laughs> What's the Elm community like in 2020? You, you, you touched briefly on how to get a job in Elm. Where do things happen and how does it feel to be part of the Elm community? Great question. So I would say the two main places that people hang out would be on Elm Discourse and on Elm Slack. So I, I can... Remind me, I can put some links in the show notes to those. But yeah, so discourse is for sort of more long-form discussions. Slack is for more real-time discussions. I, I generally recommend to people to start off with Elm Slack because 
uh, the beginners channel there is just full of really friendly, helpful people who will just answer questions in real time. It's a honestly, it's it's the friendliest community I've ever been a part of. And I I say that with affection for the Ruby community, but I I just I don't know maybe it's just the Elm community just has a special place in my heart. But I mean everybody's just really nice and really friendly, and I don't know I I just have a lot of friends there and and just think very fondly of it. When I think about what I recommend to people in terms of getting into the community, I always say Elm Slack, uh, and then the next place I mention is Discourse. But that's not to say that there aren't other places like I know there's an Elm subreddit and things like that. But I think those those are kind of the two main places. Pre-pandemic, a really big place. So we had an increasing number of Elm conferences. So I think back in 2015, we had zero Elm conferences. In 2019, we'd gotten all the way up to four different Elm conferences. And there was going to be an Elm uh, Japan for the first time in 2020, which unfortunately had to be called off along with all the other 2020 Elm conferences. So Mm. uh, hopefully, uh, knock on wood, those will be coming back after the world gets back to normal. But I, I really miss it. I just have a lot of great memories of just getting to meet people in person and you know exchange ideas and (laughs) yeah awesome have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster less buggy experience for your customers i mean let's face it the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production so go figure it out right you run it on production but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the Raygun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into twitter is also not fun so go check out raygun they are definitely going to help you out there are thousands of customer centric customer focused software companies who use raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers and if you go to raygun and use our link you can get a 14 day free trial so you can go check that out at rubyrogues.com slash raygun. Yeah, I think not necessarily to to rehash functional stuff per se, but I mean, I think one of the, you, you talked about like nice communities, right? Or we, we were t- kind of talking about nice communities and you're like, well, I love Elm even more than I like Ruby's community, right? And I think, I mean, to be frank, there's something, there's some sort of thing, right? Nice communities, and how you advocate for your language, you know, I think kind of go hand in hand, right? I like Ruby and I feel like not not taking my Ruby Bible, so to speak, and be beating people over the head <laughs> with it, right? Makes people amenable to wanting to join the Ruby community. And I feel like I have never been browbeat by an Elm Bible. So I have a positive opinion of the Elm community, right? That's Whereas right. yeah. I have been smacked by the JavaScript and the Haskell two by fours, you know, quite a <laughs> lot, right? Oh no. So yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a big fan of like nice communities. Otherwise, I yeah, I, I, I think we need more of programming. You know, that's I think that's a, that's sort of the one of the changes we can be in the world. You know, like you know, like Min Swan is just a great. You know, Matt's is nice, so we are nice. Like I, I love that. It's it's just a great like mantra to live by like yeah let's let's try to be nice to each other you know 
I agree. Though that that particular one always bothers me, not because it, not because the idea bothers me, but because what happens when Matt's dies, or what happens <laughs> if Matt's like, oh my God. you know, I don't know. Like if oh something God. happens to Matt's and he's suddenly not nice, like hey, what? We, look, twenty twenty. We we've had enough bad news in twenty twenty. All right, we don't. Right? Need- <laughs> I'll, I'll knock on wood, guys. I'm not. I'm not trying to suggest that this would happen. I'm just. It always like worries me. What if? Sorry. But yeah, no, I, I like nice communities and I've always like uh, it's part of the reason why uh, for me, the Elixir community has always, you know, had some sort of draw. Right. Like, I feel like they've always tried to be like, make me feel like they're going to be a nice community if I come join them. So, yeah, I, I uh, think another um, another interesting thing. So, uh, you know, to maybe draw a, a bit of contrast, but I, I think they're sort of coming at the the like let's have a nice community from different angles evan has always said like hey let's you know it's great if you like elm compared to you know what you're using before but let's not bash other languages you know like we can say like hey i prefer this but we don't need to like talk smack about you know what whatever we were using before Um, it's too late because i've done it already (laughs) (laughs) but but at the same time he also says you know hey i I don't want to like people would ask like hey should we call ourselves elmists or elmers or you know arborists or like what what you know what name should we use and everyone was like how about just elm programmers because at the end of the day it's a tool you know it's not it's not like we need to sign up for a religion here it's like you know it's okay if you like elm for this problem and it's okay if you like other things for other problems we don't need to you know self self-identify as like that strongly with with this tool that we're using and i think that sort of reminds me of it's like the opposite of the the thing you were saying earlier about functional programming like there there are definitely some people i've met who for whom it's not just a tool it's not just a paradigm it's sort of like a way of life or or like something that you know needs to be preached as opposed to just you know I, i think there's an important difference between that and saying like hey here's this nice thing you know or hey this has nice properties we can talk about it in sort of a calm way without without you know forming factions I think that's yeah that's that's also like a step in the right direction towards having nice communities remove the zealotry from it and uh, it kind of just you know yeah but you know i mean obviously like i'm a very passionate person i really love elm but you know that that's not to say that like i you know i i'm not going to claim that elm will be the best language of for all time for every problem like there are problems like i just talked about earlier where i i choose not to use elm and also there are, you know will it would be weird if this turned out to be the last programming language anyone ever needed for you know this domain right <laughs> like we're technologists technology evolves sooner or later there's going to be something else yeah of, go on john no go ahead luke i'll let you i was gonna say speaking of evolution how how has the elm grown in the last five years that's a great question you know, it's funny because I think of it as a mixture of growth, but also refinement. And so some things have grown and other things have sort of intentionally shrunk. So actually back in 2015, that was pretty close to a big turning point for the language, which is to date the biggest like breaking change the language has ever had like by a very large margin, which was uh, basically simplifying the the foundational primitives of the language. So originally there used to be this very low level concept called signals and everything was built out of signals. And at some point, what we discovered was that in practice, everybody tended to organize their signals into this model view and update concept. And so you'd have your model, which is like your application state, then you'd have your view, which was a way to render that state, and then you'd have update, which is a way of transitioning from one state to another based on user input. And those are sort of the three ingredients that everybody would use. And at some point, this became a library, 
And then eventually it was like, you know what? Why don't we just make this the primitive? Because signals are really hard to learn and everybody uses them in the same way anyway. So basically Evan said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to move the foundation and say now the foundation is this, this sort of model view and update API uh, that everyone uses anyway. And that's what it's been ever since. And it was a, a really nice simplification to the language, in, in my view. And it's sort of almost become synonymous with Elm. It's, it's known as the Elm architecture. And that architecture has since been ported to JavaScript and you know various libraries. And people seem to like to use it outside the Elm community too. But uh, making it like a first class thing in the language, I think was the, the biggest way that Elms change since those days. Other things that have changed. So other things have like simplified and, and gone away. There've been various API changes. The compiler has gotten a lot faster since it was in those days. Like now it's it's very fast. I mean, it's it's normal to have a scratch compiler usually should only take, so we have like 400,000 lines of code at work. Actually, I haven't measured this in a while, but generally speaking, if you're doing an incremental recompile, you expect it to be under a second or, or like maybe about a second, uh, depending on what changed and like how big the, how many other modules that affects. Obviously lots of, you know, bug fixes and things like that. But really like the fundamental experience of using Elm, I don't think has has changed that much other than just sort of getting better. Um, I would say it's it's more refinements than than anything else. We got a, a nicer debugger. Uh, it does like time travel and stuff like that out the box. And yeah, at this point, I would say the language has has gotten quite stable. I don't really anticipate any major breaking changes in the immediate future, which, you know, for a language that's granted, you know, not, not been around for even a decade yet at this point, it's nice to see that it's sort of starting to be like, okay, this is this has been vetted. This design is nice. We don't need to like keep making big changes. There were like one or two changes of various sizes that seemed to be necessary based on what we learned. But at this point, it's like, yeah, it seems to be working pretty well for people. One possible <laughs> thing, which I, I don't want to promise because it's not clear that this will end up making sense, but you mentioned earlier about desktop applications in the browser. Yeah. And so one thing that a lot of people ask me about is WebAssembly. You know, what, what's what's the deal with like Elm and WebAssembly? Because Elm compiles the JavaScript. And the short answer there is that Elm is designed to be able to compile to WebAssembly, in fact, in a backwards compatible way where even your... So one of the things you can do with Elm is JavaScript interrupts. So we use this at work for like, there's some like rich text, like WYSIWYG editor that we use, like little things like that, that's written in JavaScript. And one of the things that Elm is designed to be able to do is in the future to be able to compile to WebAssembly instead of JavaScript and yet still be able to be backwards compatible with not only your existing Elm code, but that even includes your JavaScript interop. This is all like theoretically you know, by design, but it's not necessarily you know, going to work out in practice if, if maybe something surprising happens. But yeah, there's really no reason that like from a design perspective, Elm could not compile to WebAssembly if that turns out to be something that people want. Of course, there are questions of like browser support and things like that, but it's somewhat of an exciting prospect to me that the code that I've already written or like all that, you know, code we have at work uh, could someday just get a just a, a really big, nice performance upgrade by having it compiled to WebAssembly instead of JavaScript without our having to really lift a finger. But, you know, that's sort of what you can get when you have a language that's by design sort of compiling to JavaScript as sort of a, a compilation target exclusively rather than as, you know, sort of like an enhancement on top of JavaScript like TypeScript is. No, I think WebAssembly had a bit of a tough start in its in its life, where the first time anyone saw it was uh, when it was mining bitcoins on unwelcomely <laughs> on your computer. So hopefully, yeah. the future of WebAssembly will be a bit brighter. That was really interesting. What you're saying about JavaScript interop. So as a as a, a semi reluctant front end dabbler, 
you know, I am I am the front end builder of last resort. <laughs> and I like to take relatively complete JavaScript components to solve a problem which I have a lot of difficulty building. Say, for example, I wanted to to build, as you said, a rich text editor, some kind sure. of WYSIWYG tool. I don't want to spend a lot of time doing that if I can just drop one in. And sure, it might take me a couple of days to get it working, but that sure beats six months writing one from scratch. Sure. So how, how interoperable is Elm? And do you cover that in your book? Yes, there's actually a whole chapter on that called Talking to JavaScript. <laughs> and yeah, so Elm is definitely interoperable with JavaScript, but the way that it does it is pretty clever in my opinion, where it basically sort of segments the JavaScript off. And so there's sort of like Elm land and JavaScript land. And you can get the two worlds to talk to each other. That's why the chapter is called Talking to JavaScript. But it's not a fluid thing. So you can't, for example, in the middle of your Elm function, just call an arbitrary JavaScript function. It's more like the way I like to think of it is it's somewhat like uh, broadcasting an event. So Elm will say like, hey, JavaScript, I want you to do this thing. And then on the JavaScript side, you have a listener set up and says, oh, I, I hear that Elm wants me to do this thing. Great. I will do that thing and then broadcast an event back to Elm and Elm's listening for events from JavaScript. And so in this way, you have a very strong abstraction boundary there. And so you can you can tell all the things on Elm land follow the, the rules that you're used to and all the things in JavaScript land, it's, you know, it's back to the Wild West, but they can talk to each other. So you can, you know, and the end user has no idea this is happening. It's just, you know, from their perspective, it's just a page. The other thing you can do, and I, I cover both of these techniques in the book, is actually uh, you can use custom elements, which is part of the web component specification. I think that Elm programmers might be in practice the biggest users of web components just for interop. <laughs> because it turns out to be a very convenient way to do interact with JavaScript stuff. So the way, if you're not familiar with uh, web components, that basically I am not okay. familiar with web components. Okay, so it's it's a a relatively rarely used specification in the browser, but it's basically a way to define a custom element, or at least this is the part of it that we really use. Technically, web components also covers like Shadow DOM and things like that, which are not really important for the interop purposes. But custom elements in particular is a pretty straightforward idea for a feature, which is basically, so you've got your built-in HTML elements, like you've got button and div and you know so on and so forth. And custom elements is a way for you to, in JavaScript, define new elements, which whenever they're instantiated in the browser, the browser just runs your JavaScript code, no matter how they got into the DOM. So in this way, what you can do <laughs> is you can start by saying, I want to define a new custom element called I don't know, WYSIWYG-Editor. And whenever I see a tag, whenever the browser sees a tag called WYSIWYG-Editor, it's going to run this custom JavaScript code that I have defined to set it up and have it you know, send events and then uh, tear it down when it's all done. And then on the Elm side, you just say, oh, I would like to put in an element here called WYSIWYG-Editor. And I'm going to give it these attributes, these properties, and set up these event handlers on it. And then the browser will actually take care of, of making the communication happen because the browser is like, oh, you've added one of these elements. I will go ahead and run my hook for the custom element and, and so on and so forth. And yeah, in, in the book, we, we give examples of doing interop in both of those different styles. The, uh, the custom element one, of course, is, is quite nice when you want to have something like right in the middle of your DOM, like, you know, a, a custom element. <laughs> and then the other style is, is more for like, if you want to do some processing, like you want to send it off to like a... JavaScript um, logging library or something like that. It's my understanding that this is what we're doing when we put uh, custom components on the page with like React, for example. So React doesn't actually use the um, 
the web component spec or, or the custom element spec. They have their okay. own sort of thing behind the scenes. I actually, a few years ago, I, I went to a conference where one of the days of the conference had a, it was called a creator's summit. And it was basically representatives from several different communities, like, like technologies uh, working in the browser. So it was like me from Elm and uh, Tom Dale from Ember and Andrew Clark from React and Stephen Fluent from Angular. And I totally blanking on who was there from Vue, but it was two people. It was Divya and uh, anyway, uh, so, so people from different front end technologies. And uh, one of the questions that someone asked at one point of the group was like, hey, do, do any of us really think that we should change our component systems over to use custom elements and like web components? Or, or should we just continue doing our own things? And we all agreed that we should all continue doing our own things. And I mentioned like, hey, by the way, we actually, we really like it for interop. But yeah, we, we still use our own representation internally for, <laughs> for actual rendering. And that everybody has good reasons for doing that. I think that's probably likely the way it's going to stay. That's an interesting tidbit. Yeah. I've been educated. <laughs> I have been too, but I've forgotten a lot of it over the years. Oh, that's totally fair. Okay, so what is the testing land like out there? Like, I mean, uh, is the tooling ecosystem good? Does it have edges? I mean, you already mentioned earlier the time traveling, the debugging, you know, the time traveling debugger that you already have. So, yeah. So, great question. So, for unit testing, there's Elm test. And basically, there isn't really any Elm-specific sort of integration test stuff, because usually when you're dealing with integration tests, you sort of need to spin up a browser and like actually, you know, like run the code to see what DOM, what, what actual DOM elements appear there. If you want to test the sort of a Elm virtual DOM code, uh, you can do that in Elm test itself. And you can actually run queries on your own, like internal, like staying within Elm land virtual DOM and say like, oh, I expect there to be a button here and a, and a div there and so forth. But of course, you know, the, it's always possible that the real, real browser might do something different if you have certain extensions installed or, or things like that, or you have other JavaScript on the page that's, that's you know, messing with the DOM. So if you want an integration test, Elm doesn't really have anything special to say there. You can use like Cypress or something like that. But for unit testing, Elm test is kind of, you know, similarly to Elm itself, designed to be really nice, easy to use out the box and really fast. And I think it does a, a good job of that. And awesome. there's a chapter on that in the book also. <laughs> okay, even better, yeah. even better. I don't, uh, is there anything that you specifically feel like we maybe haven't touched on yet that you're like, well, well we should really talk about this thing? Oh, that's a good question. No, I think it's been an interesting discussion. I can't think of anything. Okay. Where, you also put in your, I, sorry, go ahead. You also put in your notes that you had a interesting story around how you came to be the author of this book. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the way I, I came to be the author of Element Action was that, uh, and this is actually in the, it's in the foreword of the book. So I got, a, I got an email from Manning saying they were going to do a book about Elm and they wanted to know, like they, I, I guess I'd given a talk about Elm or something at that point. And I was a, I don't know, part of the early Elm community, I guess. And, and they asked if I wanted to get on a call to, to talk about, you know, people I might recommend for writing the book. And at this point, I, I'd co-authored a very early book on React and I'd written some blog posts and, and that was kind of about it, given like a talk or two. And I'd never, you know, written a whole book myself or anything like that. But I, I got on the call and I started getting really animated about just explaining about like, well, it's really important that this is a book about building things and, you know, kind of like, like, like a reaction to some of the stuff Luke was saying earlier and trying to make it, you know, like not about, you know, the this like high-minded stuff, but just about let's just build a thing in a nice programming language. And, and then I was like, oh, and also you want to make sure to start by teach this first and then teach that later and teach this in terms of that because I'd also been like, 
you know, had some experience teaching Elm to people at this point. And of course, by the end of the call, I was like, all right, I'll write it, which, which I, I suspect was kind of what they were, you know, <laughs> what, what, why they reached out to me to ask me for names in the first place. That may have been the goal. And if so, you know, well played. But I, I did not intend to write a book about Elm until they reached out to me and, and asked me for some names of people who might be good to write it, which I also recommended. Uh, there are other people who've written Elm books too, but <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was funny. I don't know if maybe other authors have had that similar experience, but <laughs> it was a first for me. Where can I go to look at sites made using Elm? So we've got the No Reading site. Uh, what other sites are there? You're like, look, Elm can do this. Oh, good question. I think there is a built with elm github repo somewhere built with elm.co yeah looks like they just got a bunch of uh bunch of sites here yeah screenshots and uh links to various things thank you i will go and check that out oh that's what i assumed as well hey folks i don't know if you've noticed but i've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top five percent of developers in the field if you're looking to level up figure out how to contribute more get the career you want get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Cool. Then I I think we should probably roll into picks, maybe, unless we have something else. It sounds like we don't have anything else. Okay, sweet. Luke, did you want to start us off? I did. I have been building front ends this week, funnily enough, and I've been using a few components from a guy called Rick, who has a kind of uh, small software business in the Netherlands called Pekina.nl, and it's P-Q-I-N-A.nl. And these are just kind of uh, far upload components and uh, a few really useful things. And I've been using them to upload to Linode's object storage S3 alike storage system, which is my second pick. And I have picked it before, but... The object component, uh, object storage component on Linode does not talk to the standard AWS S3 gem in Ruby. And if you start talking to it and following the S3 guide, you will quickly find it is not S3 compatible out of the box. You must add to your Rails setup uh, a magic option. And that magic option is the HTTP continue timeout and then everything magically starts working. So a qualified pick there for Linode system, it's a lot cheaper than S3. It's a lot cheaper than Google Cloud, but you do need to know the magic option to get it working with Ruby. Fun fact about them, they're actually headquartered in Philadelphia, which is where I live, and they host meetups at their office, uh, which is actually in a bank. Like they're actually, they have- <laughs> They've got their own uh, bank? Well, the, the building used to be a bank. So they actually have like servers down where the vaults used to be. It's pretty cool. Nice. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. All right. So I have a couple of picks today. One is just kind of something that I was encountering this past week. So 
I was working on a thing recently where, so, you know, I have my consulting firm or whatever, and uh, we had a, a client come in that wanted a very, they, they wanted some, they wanted some customizations to Shopify. And in the end, you know, they, what they wanted was like Shopify pro or plus or whatever it is that costs like a couple grand a month or whatever. So they, that wasn't really in their budget. And so anyway, long story short, after a really long process of talking about what they wanted and, and what they, you know, discovering what they needed and things like that kind of turns out that they just kind of wanted a small thing. And we ended up, we ended up basically proposing to put together a site or whatever, uh, basically a custom thing for them. It's using Spree, you know, or whatever. So, you know, if you remember from way back or whatever, they, I mean, they're obviously still around Spree and uh, whatever the thing that came out of them later. I can't remember off the top of my That's head. That's the e-commerce, the kind yeah. of e-commerce thing. Yep. So, you know, it works. It's pretty, and you know, if you're just trying to spin up more or less e-commerce thing for somebody and it looks like a monolith and it quacks like a monolith, like Rails with Spree does the trick. So that was pretty cool. Yep. And so then for my second, my second thing, I was looking at my list of stuff and something that I haven't recommended here that's on my list. Um, it So a book series that I read a really long time ago. I don't know what it is, but I've always like kind of liked Merlin, you know, the mage King Arthur kind of oh, yeah. era stuff, right? So you know, if you're familiar with if you're familiar with Legends stuff, some of them talk about him in a pretty cool manner. And he's always kind of has, you know, a pretty cool atmosphere to him. But then there's some that I mean he's got some creepy elements to him, right? Like but but Are there was we talking a book about series. Arthur or Merlin here. Who, who, Merlin, who? uh both, both actually. <laughs> but but Merlin specifically is what I'm talking about. But there's this book series where basically the author imagines Merlin how he became Merlin as a kid, basically. Hmm. And so I'll paste this in here, but it's a really fantastic series or whatever. I remember I I read this. Uh, it's been a long time now, but but it's like, I don't know. I have a handful of like 10 to 20 like book series that like, I'm just like, these are awesome. Everyone should read them. And it's on that list. So it's pretty sweet. And I'll, I'll paste it in here in just a second once I actually find a link to it on Amazon. So, yeah, that was super cool. I just really liked that it gave him a lot of motivations. And I mean, if you think about it, uh, I think one of my favorite things here is, you know, Morgana Le Fay is always like the evil bad guy, right? So, and not a lot of people explain why she's like evil and bad. It's like, oh, she hates Merlin. Why? Because I don't know. <laughs> so, and, and yeah, that was one of my favorite parts about it. But Richard, did you have anything maybe? Yes, I got a couple. Okay, first one, I realize that I'm extremely late to the party here, but Battlestar Galactica, it's good. <laughs> I I never watched it when everybody else watched it, when it was like actually a new thing, but it was always kind of on my back burner, like, oh yeah, I should try that at some point. And yeah, it really holds up. It feels like watching a, a brand new series that just came out, except that I know it's all the episodes are available miraculously. Uh, so if anyone hasn't checked that out, I, I if you, and you like, you know, sci-fi type stuff, definitely recommend it. Second pick, Front End Masters. So I did an Elm course for them as well. So if you like more of a workshop style format, it covers a lot. There's a lot of overlap with the Intro to Elm workshop that I did for them and the book. I also did an Advanced Elm workshop for them, uh, which is sort of more for like once you've been into Elm for several months. So if you're interested in either of those, check them out, frontendmasters.com. I'm also doing a Rust workshop for them, uh, which will hopefully be out in April 2021. We will see. 
it's, it's still a work in progress, but that's the goal. Third pick is this is a, this is going to be a weird one. Barbellmedicine.com. So this is uh, basically two doctors, like MD doctors, medical doctors, are, are both really into strength training, like lifting heavy weights, and as you know, for health, and then also, I mean, I guess some people do it competitively. And I've just gotten really into their stuff. It's like they're really nerdy about it, and they get into all these like details of like protein muscle synthesis and stuff like that. And they they have like videos on YouTube and you know like guides on their website and. I don't know. I've never really been somebody who likes to exercise for its own right, but I definitely like nerding out about things. And so it's, it's been kind of cool to read their stuff. And uh, it's, it's like, maybe uh, enjoy that aspect of it more. <laughs> awesome. I, I totally, I can totally sympathize with the being late to the game thing. My wife and I, neither one of us had watched any Star Trek our entire lives. Oh, and wow. A few years ago, we embarked on a journey and watched all of it. So like um, every, every series. It, yeah, like we watched everything. So it happened. Wow. I, I totally understand that thing where you get to a thing like really late. It's got it. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, oh, one more thing before we get. Oh, actually, if people want to reach out to you, you know, find out more information, how do they get a hold of you? What's the best way? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Elm Slack, and GitHub as RT Feldman. And yeah, you can find all my Elm projects and stuff there and my on, on GitHub. And I, uh, not super active on Twitter, but well, I used to be more active and then I decided I should be less active on it. <laughs> but definitely still, uh, you know, I'm on there and if people at me, I generally respond to things. So Awesome. We can get those links in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.